Welcome to the Novel Analyst Podcast. I'm Jed Hearn, and each episode I analyze a story to help you become a better writer. Mistborn, The Final Empire by Brandon Sanderson. Mastering the grand skill of worldbuilding. Brandon Sanderson is one of my favorite authors today, and Mistborn is one of his best novels. I think one of the things that stands out to me so much about it, and one of the things that definitely uh, shines out in his writing in general, is his fantastic ability to craft amazing worlds. Mistborn is essentially a heist novel set within a fantasy world, and it chronicles a gang of street thieves and a young urchin... Orchin? What was I going to say there? A young street urchin named Vin, who are trying to overthrow this character called the Lord Ruler, who's basically this, like, all-powerful guy who's ruled the land for the last thousands years. Thousands of years. And it's set within this world where every night these mists appear from nowhere. And most people are scared of these mists, but there's a few people who aren't. There's a few people who see the night and see the mists as opportunity. And these people are called Mistborn, and they basically have this really awesome magic system where Mistborn ingest metals and burn them in their stomachs. And depending on what metal they ingest, it gives them different powers, such as the ability to be stronger or have faster reflexes, the ability to see a couple of seconds into the future, the ability to push off other bits of metal so you can kind of like telekinetically fly across this city. And that's just only one aspect of the fantastic world that uh, Brandon Sanderson has constructed in Mistborn the Final Empire. So in today's episode, I want to analyze how Sanderson has created such an amazing world. And I've kind of narrowed it down to 12 steps, uh, 12 ways that he has created an interesting world and conveyed it in a compelling, uh, conflict-creating narrative way to readers. So number one, drip feed information. Don't flood. So it can be quite tempting when you've spent months or even years, in the case of, say, Tolkien, working out your world and writing about all the history and and politics and all the cool information that you've created. It can be very tempting to take all that and just want to flood it into the reader's minds to kind of just like force it an encyclopedia down their throats within the first chapter. And I think this is an issue that a lot of fantasy novels have when they create a prologue. You know, you kind of just have this opportunity to basically shove a textbook down readers' throats and say like, here, look, I've done research, I've created all this world, you must need to know everything possible here. But Mistborn shows that that is probably not the best way to do things, and that there's a better way, the way that Mistborn shows. So rather than kind of cramming all the world, important world information down readers' throats, Mistborn drip-feeds this information throughout the story. So you don't really find out about the magic system until a couple of hundred pages into the novel, although you have hints of it earlier. You don't really find out about the plan to do the heist on the Lord Ruler until, again, a couple of hundred pages in the future. The story starts small in scope, with only a couple of characters, and then gradually expands as it goes along, introducing new people, introducing new conflicts and places and events. And I think this is very key 
for fantasy writers, rather than doing kind of a Hobbit-esque 20-page description of this made-up species of Hobbits at the start of your novel, like Tolkien did, it's much better to just slowly kind of drip this throughout novels. And this is why I kind of have a really strong bias against prologues, because a lot of the time, a prologue is just code word for encyclopedia. And that's cool. It's good that you've got that awesome world, but remember, it's a story, not an encyclopedia. So drip feed information, don't flood it. Number two, detail is your friend. So a really good way to increase the realism and world build without adding extra words is to be specific with your descriptions. So rather than say, Ben walked over to the wooden table, you could say, Ben walked over to the mahogany table, or the scratch table, or the wonky table. You haven't increased the word count, but you have increased the specificity of your setting. And if you can keep doing this, if you can take every opportunity to increase the specificity without increasing your word count, I think that's a good thing. However, a word of caution, obviously you can take this too far. You don't need to provide descriptions and modifiers for every single thing in your novel. Like, it would be very, very annoying to read a passage where it's like, Ben walked over the squeaky floorboards and turned the grating door handle and stepped through into the dark room where he sat down on the plush chair. It's kind of a bit excessive. But anyway, in general, sensible use of detail can be your friend. Number three, know a couple of things really deeply, then skate over the others. This is something Brandon Sanderson talks about in his online lectures, which I'll link to in the show notes for this episode at uh, novelanalyst.com. One thing known really deeply is going to be much better than 10 things known really shallowly. What do I mean by that? Well, rather than stressing about nailing your world's economy, geology, religion, politics, architecture, history, social conventions, arts, and everything else, just focus on one or two of those things and go really in-depth with it. Then, when you offhandedly mention a bit of information about something else, readers will believe that you have also gone into similar depth about it, because they trust that you know what you're talking about. For instance, in Mistborn, Sanderson works out the magic system meticulously well, with amazing detail, grounds it, makes it feel realistic. Then, when he talks about politics or something like that, he only needs a couple of lines to convince you that he knows what he's talking about, because readers trust him, because they're like, oh, you've worked out the magic system really well, you've probably worked out the politics really well, and so forth. So this is kind of like just a general good guideline. If you go deep into one area, then you can kind of mention the other areas, and readers will be like, yeah, sure, I believe you. you, you were trustworthy here, you knew your stuff here, I think you know your stuff here as well. Number four. Avoid excessive proper nouning. So, I often find that a lot of fantasy novels can be in such a rush to introduce all these terms and these new characters and these cool places that they just have, like, all these capital terms everywhere. So, when you look at a normal sentence, for instance, there's probably only, like, a couple of capitals in there just for proper nouns and stuff. But in a lot of fantasy novel sentences, you might have a sentence which has more capital terms 
than not. So if you're having a lot of like proper nouns and everything, it kind of pulls readers out of the their suspension of disbelief because you're like, oh, these are just all made up terms because you're giving them all proper nouns to things that don't exist in our world. So I often find that having as few capitals as possible actually increases reader immersion. So when you're editing, think about like, oh, does this specific item need a capital term? Does this specific uh, government governmental office need a specific term? Does this place need a specific capitalized term? Number five, write a first scene that encapsulates the story. This is probably my favorite way to build world because it's applicable to just about every novel. And also it's just kind of a good way to write a great first scene. So what I mean by this is that the first scene of your novel is a great opportunity to kind of write a miniature piece that sort of sums up everything your novel is about. So for example, in Mistborn, the first scene, uh, the first chapter basically sets up the opposition between the two classes in the society. That is the, the corrupt noblemen and the scar, who are kind of like the underclass slaves who work on the nobleman's plantations and stuff. This first chapter sets up the scar versus nobleman's opposition. It sets up the weird, wacky weather going on in the novel. Like the first line is, ash fell from the sky, which is a pretty cool first line that grabs your attention. It sets up the scar's fear of the nightly mists that arrive, surprisingly enough, every night. I don't know where I was going with that sentence, but let's just move on from there. It also sets up one of the main characters, uh, his name is Kelsier, his quest to rebel against the noblemen and overthrow them so that the Scar can be free. And it also sets up Kelsier's competence. The chapter basically ends with him killing an entire manor of nobles. And you don't actually see his viewpoint when he does this. You kind of just come there at the aftermath. And that's really effective because now you're like, oh, I know what this character wants. He wants to rebel against the nobleman. He wants to free the Scar. But you don't know, like, even though he's competent, you don't know how he achieved this. So it's already got some suspense moving on. And basically, I only had this realization when I was writing notes for this episode about half an hour ago. This first scene essentially summarizes the whole book. The whole book is about Kelsier starting a rebellion to overthrow the Lord Ruler and overthrow the nobleman so that the Scar can be free. And that's exactly what he does in this chapter. He just does it in miniature. Rather than overthrowing the whole society like he does by the end of the novel, he just overthrows one plantation owner. He just frees one group of Scar, like probably only a hundred or so. And this is a technique that I've tried to use in my current novel that I'm working on, Across the Broken Stars, where in the first scene, I introduce the main character, I introduce the secondary character, and I've also thrown in the chief antagonist. They all meet each other, well, they're all around each other in this first scene. They don't necessarily get into conflict in the first scene, but you instantly know that there's going to be troubles between them and that the story is very much going to follow how they interact with each other. Number six, use extracts from in-world documents to enhance realism. So I've read a lot of articles about Brandon Sanderson because, like I said, he's one of my favorite authors and... He quoted Dune as one of his favorite novels of all time, which pretty fair assumption. Dune is amazing. It's probably one of my favorites as well. And I bring this up because Dune does an interesting thing at the start of each chapter where 
there's an extract from kind of this historical document describing the story that you're currently reading as if it's the past. Mistborn does something similar. And if I had an interview with Brandon Sanderson, I'd probably ask him if he was inspired by this, and I'd hazard to guess that it would be yes. Basically, at the start of every Mistborn chapter, you've got an extract describing kind of things about the story world from the position of a historical in-world document. And this is a really cool way to enhance realism because, first of all, it allows you to talk about things that you can't describe or show in the chapter. You can just sort of tell them here. And second of all, it makes you feel like you're kind of just picking up a newspaper from the novel. You're like, oh, there's actually writing and stuff that exists in this world. Like, it sounds silly, but it kind of makes you think it's more real. Number seven, use settings to explore theme and character growth. I think this is one of the things that differentiates cool settings from awesome, compelling, amazing settings. Cool settings will just be like, oh, this is an amazing world. I've never seen a story that takes place on a giant elephant that's swimming through cosmic goop. But settings that explore theme and character growth just have something a bit extra. They have something a bit deeper and more meaningful. So in Mistborn, the main character, Vin, distrusts everyone and is full of fear. The setting reflects this. The world at night is shrouded by these mists, and there's stories and rumours about these monsters that come out in the mists, and as a result, Vin doesn't go out at night. And this reflects kind of her distrust that, and suspicion that everyone is going to betray her. However, as her character arc progresses and she becomes more trusting of others, she learns the mists she learns the mists aren't something to be feared and she becomes comfortable in them she even experiences joy at being able to use her powers to basically fly around in the mists at night and her arc culminates in her becoming so trusting of others and trusting in the mists that she draws upon them in the final fight to defeat the lord ruler and this basically shows you how the setting of the mists isn't an arbitrary decision by Sanderson here. It's not just saying, oh, that's kind of like a cool atmospheric thing. No, it's something that is actually organically grows out of the theme. And I don't know if the mist came first or if the theme came first or if the the plot came first, but what's more likely is they all kind of evolve together to create this theme that feels cohesive rather than something that just feels like a grab bag of like cool settings and cool stories. Number eight. Concrete sensory details. One of the things that Sanderson talks about in his lectures, which again I'll post a link to in the show notes, is this idea of the pyramid of abstraction. So whenever you're describing something that's concrete, you are at the bottom of the period, at the pyramid of abstraction. You're doing a concrete detail. So for instance, if I said, the wall was rough, that's a concrete description. If I said, the wall reminded him of his childhood home, that's moving further up the pyramid of abstraction. It's an abstract description. Now, what Sanderson describes with this pyramid is that you need to have most of your story occurring in the concrete area of the pyramid of abstraction. Well, not most, but I'll explain why it's a good idea. By having most of your story occur in the concrete realm, you know, through descriptions that are like literal, like saying, 
oh, he walked through the door, uh, he jumped out the window, the floor felt cold. It grounds readers within your setting. It, it allows them to easily 100% imagine what's going on there. It's concrete. If you have too much stuff going on in the higher levels of the pyramid of abstraction, such as, he thought this was a bad idea, uh, this thing did not seem like a smart move, or, you know, character thoughts, or descriptions that are about things that the characters can't actually see, hear, taste, touch, and feel, or whatever, it kind of makes readers' suspension of disbelief sort of just, like, trail away, away a bit. It's kind of moving into this abstract realm that's a bit harder to ground yourself in. So, by making sure that you remember this idea of the pyramid of abstraction, what should you do as a writer? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked hypothetical question asker. Basically, try to ground your story in that concrete area as much as possible so that when you want to move into that abstract plane and, say, have an offhanded remark or, like, have a character's thought come across, or just have, like, a one-sentence description of why this societal convention is the way it is, readers will kind of follow along with you. And basically, think about it this way. If you have lots of concrete description talking about, like, you know, basic sensory things like what the characters see and feel and taste and touch and smell, I think I've got all five. Let me know if I haven't. If you have lots of those concrete descriptions then you kind of get permission from the reader to do the occasional far-fetched thing, such as talking about dragons, or having magic, or having your characters fly around through the mists, like in Mistborn. Number nine, have rules, even if you don't share them. One of the interesting things about Mistborn is how objective and scientific and rule-based the magic system is. There's a very clear adherence to kind of basic physics principles of, apart from the obvious magic thing, in terms of, like, when one character uses their power, there's always, like, an equal and opposite reaction. You need a certain amount of fuel to do things with your power. The fuel depletes at a roughly predictable rate. Uh, People acquire fuel at, again, reasonable and predictable rates. And the interactions of the powers are grounded in, yeah, like, these physics principles. So, for instance, if a heavier person telekinetically pushes on a lighter person and they're both pushing at the same time the lighter person is going to fly further away because equal and opposite reactions more force relative to their weight and the thing is even if you aren't someone who likes kind of these like hard magic systems it's still important to have rules because if you don't know what's it's all right for the readers to not know how things work in your story that's fine but if you don't know how things work in your story then you might run into some consistency issues. For instance, if your wizard can, like, break down a wall just by tapping it with his pinky finger in chapter one. Did I say pinky finger? Pinky finger. There we go. If your wizard can just break down a wall with his pinky finger in chapter one, but then in chapter ten he's trapped in a dungeon and he can't get his way out of the walls, even though he's, like, kicking them with his full force, readers are going to be a bit sus. So it's important to kind of have rules and guidelines. Don't have to be hard, they can just be soft, so that you know that you can maintain consistency. Number 10. Make names and people distinguishable by using different starting letters. This is a pretty small thing, but you'd be surprised at the amount of times that stories have main characters that all start with the same letter. 
I love Harry Potter, but one thing that does make it kind of difficult to distinguish between characters if you're a new reader is the fact that Harry, Hermione, and Hagrid all have names starting with H. Obviously, it's not an issue because they're so different in characters and the books are so great, but in a lesser book, in a lesser author's hands, those characters will probably blur together and get a bit unclear. So it's a good idea to try to make sure there's different sounds and different starting letters for each kind of big thing in your novel. Number 11. Avoid introducing too many things at once. So another common issue when you're so eager to get all your world-building information along is when you have sentences that introduce multiple made-up words and that sort of thing. And then you kind of have have to backtrack and explain what each of those means. And before you know it, you've got a like 10-sentence paragraph explaining all your terms. Not a good idea. Even when it comes to things like characters or places or... Yeah, things like that. See if you can try to break these out a bit so that you only really introduce kind of one new proper noun or new character or new thing per paragraph. And lastly, number 12, follow Brandon's zeroth law, the law of awesome. So if you follow a lot of Brandon Sanderson's writing stuff, he has kind of like this tribute to Isaac Asimov's three laws of robotics and he has these three laws of like fantasy writing and stuff and his zeroth law is probably the most important one and it basically says that whatever is cool and whatever gives you energy as a writer and whatever you think is awesome that's probably the most important thing to follow and I think this is a great place to end it because you know your worlds should be cool they should make you energized and enthused about writing them because if you're not passionate about it that's going to come across and readers will just not sense that if on the other hand you create a world that's just so awesome and like fun and out there, it's going to come across and you're going to create a great novel. So there we have it. 12 lessons from Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn, The Final Empire, that will hopefully help you build an amazing world. I'll run through them one more time just because I know I said a lot. Number one, drip feed information, don't flood. Number two, detail is your friend. Number three, Know one thing really deeply, and then you can skate over the others. Number four, avoid excessive proper nouning. Number five, write a first scene that encapsulates the story in miniature. Number six, use extracts from in-world documents to enhance realism. Number seven, use settings to explore theme and character growth. Number eight, use concrete sensory details, and remember the pyramid of abstraction. Number nine, have rules even if you don't share them. Number 10, make p- names and people distinguishable by using different starting letters. Number 11, avoid introducing too many things at once. Number 12, follow Brandon's zeroth law, the law of awesome. Thanks for listening to the Novel Analyst Podcast. Want to help me lead a rebellion against the corrupt Lord Ruler? Then leave a rating in iTunes to show your support. And if you want to subscribe to the show, go to novelanalyst.com forward slash subscribe for show notes visit novelanalyst.com 